Greetings again. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I am here speaking as the oracles of God to awaken the body of Christ. As it says in the word of God, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is what I will seek to do. I will seek to speak out of the Spirit of God what he would be saying to me as an individual and to you as an individual and to the corporate body of Christ throughout the world for this particular time. To facilitate this, I cast lots on the Bible where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth. As it says in Proverbs 16, the last verse, the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. It was practiced by the early church. It was practiced by the nation of Israel and actually throughout church history by even powerful movements of revival, such as the Moravian revival. As what I will do then is share with you what I received thus far this week. Today being October the 21st on Wednesday of 2015. I only spent a short time today of maybe 15 minutes meditation. Sometimes it's a half hour. And then when I do speak, it's usually immediately after, which is the case here. And so there has been a clear theme that has been coming forth this week because God is truly in this. When we seek to allow God to speak through us and to facilitate that, as I do in this particular way, Believe me, the Spirit of God is speaking. I am going to share with you the various passages I received this week and make the theme passage, 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is the week that we had the election, by the way, in Canada where I live. And, of course, Trudeau was the one that was elected. I'm not going to get into that right now, but I see the significance of these passages in relation even to the election, which I will explain a little later. It was back actually last week on Thursday that I received Revelations chapter 9 and Amos chapter 6. Particularly, Amos chapter 6 stands out, and I only made a brief statement from Amos chapter 6. And it was this. And of course, it goes along with Revelations chapter 9, where there's these terrible plagues that God was allowing in these in the last days, which is, of course, there's a prophecy of the future in Revelations 9. And the Word of God there emphasizes that even though these terrible plagues that destroyed a third of man and were so devastating, even though these plagues had come upon people, their hearts had become so hardened with iniquity that they still did not repent. And then in Amos 9, we see basically the same emphasis on the hardness and the deception of people's hearts, people that claim to be the people of God. And so, in fact, the judgment increases upon these people, and it increases their satanic rebellion that blinds them from the consequences of everlasting torment that they will soon face. God compares their heart in Amos 9 to a rock which horses are not able to run on, and oxen cannot plow on. That is how hard their heart had become. Christ said, if the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? People that know the truth and turn from it are in a state that is very anti-existent, anti-life, destructive, would turn heaven into hell and therefore is relegated with others of like heart and mind 
to, as it were, the garbage dump of the universe. I don't think any of you would want to be with vile and evil people in a prison. It would be hell on earth. But such is the state that people can find themselves in. When they have the truth and deliberately rebel against the truth time and time again, the more one rebels against the truth, the more one ignores the truth that they have, the more blind they become, the more deceived they become. Now, I received on October the 19th, this last Monday, the theme passage, which was 2 Samuel chapter 4. I will be reading that chapter. And I have to say I was very mystified by the various passages of Scripture I received this week. It seemed like they were the kind of passages that I couldn't see possibly anything that God would be saying to me personally or to the body of Christ. And I thought, is there sin in my heart that I'm not aware of? Is God not speaking to me because I've known in past that it's been when there's been deception in my heart, the odd time, I'm not someone that's involved in a struggle in that way with sinning all the time. God's done a work of grace in my life through the years. I'm now almost 66 years old. My pilgrimage on this world has been with much prayer from my youth until now. But the times when there's been sin in my life or a deception that I wasn't perceiving as sin has caused me to be aware that the casting of the lots was not working at those times. And so I began to think, is this the case? But I couldn't perceive of anything that would displease the Lord in my life at this particular time when I was looking at these passages, Amos 6, Revelations 9, and 2 Samuel chapter 4. And then I received... Also, because I was wondering how could God be speaking from that, I thought, well, I'd better cast the lots again. And I got Exodus chapter 7. This passage shows that God has a plan to use the hardness of man's heart against God to work towards his purposes for those that are his people without the deception of an impure identity in something other than a relationship with God, whether it's in a group of people, a movement with a certain ideology, or our own philosophical justifications to be our own God above the Creator. Then on October the 21st, which is today, I received Proverbs 16. And there are many different verses when you read the Proverbs, but there were certain things that I perceived were standing out. The theme verse that I perceived in Proverbs 16 was verse 6, which says, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. There is an emphasis on the evil of pride in this chapter, from which springs deception that leads to many other sins that are then justified. But its root starts in pride. Now I will go ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 4, and you'll understand why I wondered what in the world could I possibly get out of this chapter. But I will read the chapter. And as I meditated, and I continued not to be in doubt, but to have faith that God was saying something, though it didn't seem he was saying something, because it seemed like, how could you get anything? How could God possibly say anything to me personally out of such a passage of Scripture? Well, here is the passage. I'll begin to read it. And when Saul's son heard that Abner was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble, and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rekah, and the sons of Rimen, Abarathite, of the children of Benjamin. For Barath also was reckoned to Benjamin. And the Barathites fled to Gitaim, and were sojourners there until this day. And Jonathan, Saul's son, 
had a son that was lame of his feet. He was five years old. When the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. And the sons of Rimmon the Berathite, and Rechab and Bana went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. And they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Rechab and Bana his brother escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber. And they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and gapped them away through the plain all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David to Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Bana his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berathite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when a wicked when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed. Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. Just going to have a little zip of water here. This is an account of the fallout after the death of Saul that happened to the captains that were immediately under him and his son Ishbosheth, which was the leader in place of Saul after Saul died. Now the word Ishbosheth means man of shame, and we will see how that plays out in this passage of scripture. Now the word Saul means requested, uh, in the root, according to the book that I received it from, which is by J.B. Jackson, the Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names. We know the account of Saul, that the nation of Israel wanted to be like the other nations about them. And so they no longer wanted to have someone that was more functional as a priest before God, like Samuel, who was a prophet and a priest who before the time of the kings was used as also in his priestly office to make the decisions that were important. And so he was really functioning first as a priest, communicating before God for the nation of Israel and from God to the nation of Israel and then executing commands and decisions as a king. So he had more of a priest-king function. But now the nation of Israel was desiring to be like the other nations around them that were idolatrous. Not that they were at that time idolatrous like those nations. But the root of the issue with the nation of Israel was that there was pride that had crept into them they had abundance, and they had military might with Saul. Now, before Saul came, they also had abundance, and they certainly were a nation to be reckoned with. 
And so it is in the times of the ease that it is that pride can so subtly creep into our lives as individuals and also to a nation. And as we know the account, those that are familiar with the word of God, God was angry with the nation of Israel that they wanted a king like the other nations around them. And so they made a request to God. And so the name Saul means requested, but it was not a request that was out of a pure heart relationship towards God. It was rather out of a desire of their own impure motives of pride. There's a scripture in the word of God concerning Israel when they were in the wilderness where they were bitterly complaining before God and now they were suffering such hardship in the wilderness and they didn't have the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. And as they were bitterly complaining, they desired this food and God, and it says concerning them, that nevertheless, he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. The life of God that satisfies was no longer fulfilling in their lives. There was now, as it were, a black hole that was eating in their soul and giving them the sense of leanness. They may have been filled on the outside and satisfied in their body, but they substituted that outward temporary gratification for the satisfaction of the soul. It says in the word of God that godliness with contentment is great gain. But I shared other passages of Scripture that the root of all the sin that basically happens is in pride because it's pride that feeds deception that can justify many other things in our lives that are contrary to God and yet are in the guise of being very religious. Oh, I could go into that in detail. I'll just briefly mention that Cain is an example of someone that was offended at the holiness of God, the consequences of God's holiness and the curse. Oh, he became distant in his heart, kind of an alienation. Now God was being perceived as an enigma more than someone that was close to him. So now he had an idolatrous view of God as someone that was very dictatorial and controlling. He lost sight of the fact that out of the holiness of God, there is no corruption, and therefore where there is no corruption, there can be unlimited life and power that can be held in wholeness and in the direction of ever-enlarging creativities of love in greater realms and realms of fulfillment. But when the love of God or is viewed in its integrity that requires judgment against all that is contrary to love, wrongly, in its consequences that require judgment, then we set up not only an emptiness in our heart that is like a black hole in outer space that sucks things into us in our decisions in a way that is destructive, Not only that, it is the consequences that reverberate not only in our lives but in those around us that we pull in in a destructive way through our decisions, through the black hole that is in us that is pulling others in away from God into the same black hole of destruction that is in our own soul that is seeking satisfaction in what can never satisfy and justifying all the actions and decisions that are grasping to somehow satisfy that black hole. And so the more and the more we try to satisfy that and can't satisfy it, the more and the more the deception grows and the hardness grows. 
and the effect and the reverberations of destruction around us. And if we feed that, we grow in a direction of becoming the tares, becoming fully mature as the sons of darkness that are anti-existent, anti-life, that are the very source of what causes hell instead of heaven. And therefore are relegated to total separation from heaven, to total separation from the love of God in its integrity that is so pure and transcendent out of that integrity through perfect atoning sacrifice with grace that is so great and unspeakable to those that will repent. So here in this passage, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we see the reverberations of the request of the children of Israel that came out of pride because they had lost the fear of God, because they had fed in to their own ways of independence from God. When people lose the fear of God, that is when pride comes in. As it says in Proverbs 16, 6, the verse I already read, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. The verse just before that verse in Proverbs chapter 16. If I can find it, I don't know if I can here. No, I can't quite get it here, but I can go to it here, I guess. What does it say? Verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. And then we have the verse I just quoted, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. So the context very clearly reveals that it's by the fear of God that we enter into the perception of who God is. First, actually, it is in his truth. That is the fact that he is holy, that his love has integrity and requires judgment against all that is contrary. And it is only when we really perceive that that we're brought to a place of humility because we realize our own inadequacy, that we must, that it is not within ourselves to be anything before God in the light of his holiness. And so we begin to recognize our need of his mercy. And we cry out for mercy. The mercy, you can never know the mercy of God if you do not first know the genuine fear of God, which is receptive to the holiness of God. It is the right recognition of God first in his holiness, out of which comes the right recognition of God as good and therefore merciful. And when we recognize that God can actually show mercy to us, because we've seen our undoneness in the light of the integrity of his love that is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment. It is a bright light that exposes all the black holes of deception that we know are deep in our heart. Then we cry out for mercy, and it is in the light of perceiving the mercy of God that we perceive the greatness of his love manifested in grace towards us who repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice. And I will just add a footnote here. I don't have time to teach on this, but I want to make it clear that from the very beginning of time, from the time of Adam and Eve, there was a very clear message of the gospel that went forth. And that is that there is only one God and that he has provided a way of mercy and forgiveness. That message was clearly preached from the very beginning of time. In fact, it was in the very being of God and always was there. The word of God says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world, before the world was planned. It was in the being of God that he had such an ultimate moral perfection of love. <clears throat> first in its integrity and holiness, that was also so great in its purity as being ultimate in that integrity, that there was not only within him the capacity, but the reality to become a perfect atoning sacrifice 
that he had without violating the integrity of his love that required judgment. The capacity to forgive could only be in the fact that God alone could have a reality of love so great that he could actually become a perfect atoning sacrifice. So the message of the gospel that I am preaching is the everlasting gospel that is described in Revelations chapter 14 on the fear of God, where it says, I saw another angel, and I'm not saying I'm that angel, I'm saying there are many that God is raising up in this hour that represent that angel and that are preaching the message, which is this, on the fear of God. Yes, it is an everlasting gospel. And it is this, to fear God, as it says in Revelations 14, and worship him that made heaven and earth. And it goes on. We can never worship God in spirit and truth until we truly come into the genuine fear of God, which is a choice to rightly recognize God for who he truly is. And who is he? He is in his being ultimately trustworthy. And you can only recognize God as ultimately trustworthy in the light of the recognition that his holiness is pure and without corruption, that is just and right, and is the very source of ultimate goodness and beauty. That is why King David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, that I may inquire in his temple and behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. The beauty of God comes out of the wholeness of God, and the wholeness of God is in the holiness of God, and it is true in our own lives. That is, we accept the holiness of God by choosing to recognize his holiness and not be offended at the consequences of judgment that he allows because of our own deceptive ways and the rebellion of man out of pride. It is then that we experience wholeness entering into our soul that brings forth a beauty in our being. And God is the very source of ultimate wholeness and of ultimate beauty for those that choose to genuinely fear God. And in this passage, and we're going back to that passage now, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, we see the consequences of what happens when people as a nation choose a leader out of their own deceptive ways. There is the reverberations of serious judgment as we see in this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 14. <clears throat> a chain reaction of impure motives with Saul having identity in the acceptance of people. Did you notice that about Saul? He was chosen to be the leader of Israel. Nevertheless, God gave them their request, but they, God was angry at the request of the nation of Israel. And then we find what? That Saul was more concerned about whether people were accepting him than he was about whether he was pleasing to God. He was more concerned about that. That became his motive. And that went all the way down to his son Ishabosh, who was putting his identity also in Saul, instead of in a relationship with God and in the acceptance of the people, rather than in his relationship with God. And so now you have people that are ruling as kings without any sensitivity to their relationship with God, without any identity in a relationship with God. Ishubeth means shame. Shame, having such a strong identity in Saul instead of God, so that he was totally feeble and therein displayed shame after Saul died. In other words, because his identity was so strong in Saul and in the acceptance of people, Ishabeth became feeble, it says. He was totally frail and fearful about everything. He had no boldness, no confidence, because his identity was fully in Saul and now Saul was gone. It wasn't in a relationship with God. 
And so the consequences of us putting our identity in self, which is pride, and in those around us, which is pride, that's the root of it, results in shame, results in inability to lead. The motives of the captains under Saul were the same. Rechab and Benaiah, they killed Ishabesh, who King David said was a righteous man, despite the fact that his identity was misplaced in Saul and in the acceptance of people just as Saul's identity was. Because it came out of the misplaced identity of the children of Israel and their motive to have a king that was an impure motive of pride. So they had very impure motives, these two captains that were under Saul, to the point that they thought that what they were doing, King David was really going to make them key people in his kingdom and they were going to have a great position because they killed these, killed Ishabish. Instead, David killed them because David did know and a pure relationship with God and he hated the contrary, which these people represented. And yet they were so deceived they didn't even realize that what they were doing would be perceived that way by King David or, that, or even realized the evil in its entirety of what they had done. We just had an election in Canada. I found it amazing that so many people were totally ill-informed about who they chose as the Prime Minister of Canada. Part of the reason for that is because the educational systems in the world are very evil at this time. Most of the universities have professors, people in positions of leadership, that are so deceived with false ideological beliefs rooted in evolution, rooted in humanism, which is a religion. Evolution is a religion. The scientific ev evidence against evolution is overwhelming. It is exposed as a mastery of deception in every aspect of its theory. There are many highly qualified scientists, I mean hundreds, highly qualified scientists that have exposed its deception in every layer, and yet it is talked about as if it is fact. And people buy into the lie. And of course, so you have the universities, you have this false religion of humanism where man is the center of the universe and, and man has evolved and everything is just made without any awareness of an ultimate life source of the universe, a creator, and justified by so-called science, which is not science at all, if anyone has ever done thorough investigation as I have. I don't have time to get sidetracked into all the evidence against evolution, but it is overwhelming. And you can go to my site at ultimatemeaning.com where I have links to all of the uh, evidence against it and where I've spoken in more detail about those things. But what I'm pointing out is that you have the educational systems, you've got the news media that has the humanistic left-wing agenda, all these things in the nation. The only thing that could turn a nation back to make choices where the choices for leadership are right is if the church in these nations humbled themselves and prayed and sought God's face and turned from their wicked ways, then God would heal their land. But it has not hitheretofore happened. And so people receive what they deserve with the reverberating consequences that God allows, that are actually the source of their own choices. For this universe has in it the basic observation 
that every initiation is either constructive or it is destructive. And so, for every initiation, there is the result of what is constructive if the initiation is constructive, and of destructive consequence if the initiation is destructive. That is true in the physical realm, and it is true in the moral and spiritual realm. And so there are the reverberating consequences that we will see according to what we as a nation have chosen. And if you go to places like the rebel.media.com and you see some of the things that are going on with the present leadership that has been elected, you will understand what I am talking about. Why, when the Harper government was causing the economy of Canada to be the strongest in the world, would we choose someone just because they're young and attractive, but where we see all kinds of policies that are going to put us into debt, especially at a time when the world is on the brink of world economic collapse? Doesn't make sense, does it? But I'm not here to get into politics, but I'm here to point out that it's obvious that God was speaking about all of these things, including the election and the passages of Scripture that have come out. I mentioned Exodus chapter 7, that I received that same day that I received 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is showing that even though these things are happening, God has a plan to use the hardness of man's heart against God to work towards his purposes. It says in Ephesians that all things work together, that God has allowed all things to work towards his purposes. I suppose I could go there and read it more accurately than uh, doing what I'm doing right now. It's Ephesians chapter 1 is one example of this. I could quickly go down there and just read a few of those verses in Ephesians chapter 1. And we read this. And this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. And it says here, for it's, it has various verses in here that point this out. And I'm not sure exactly where they are here. It says, for example, having predestinated us in verse 5 of Ephesians 1, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And further on here, it says, who worketh all things according to the good pleasure of his will, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure of his will, which he hath purposed in himself. It says in verse 11, this is the best one, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who, what? Worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. All things are working after the counsel of God's own will. It says the wrath, God will cause the wrath of man to praise him. And so we see the, the father that knows the end from the beginning, that is the source, that is the creator. He knows all of these things that are taking place and what's in the heart of the man. He knew to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there before Adam and Eve fell. But he knew what was going to happen. And of course, it's very clear in Romans chapter 9 the same. And in Romans 8, it says that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. When we truly love God, all the things that we suffer, persecution from those that are in the state of rebellion, that will eventually suffer the consequences of their bad choices themselves. All of that is working to our own refining and conformity to God's purpose when we love God. In Romans chapter 9, 
we see that great mystery being described of God's working in foreknowledge. And we see how it is explained in that chapter. Maybe it's worth even going there just quickly and briefly explaining that in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. So turning to Romans 9, this is where we have another tremendous message, but all I'm going to point out is just a few things. Verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy, in whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? First of all, if we have the genuine fear of God, why would we even question God in the first place? He's the creator. Certainly he knows what he's doing with the ones he's creating. And if we perceive that he is truly good because we receive his holiness in a right recognition, because we choose to rightly recognize God, which is the choice to fear God, to genuinely fear God, we will recognize that God has ultimate good in mind always. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same one to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Yes, he does. Because he already knows who's going to choose what from their own free will. So what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath? So he's enduring them. He's giving them the opportunity to repent. But the more he gives the truth to them, like in the case of Pharaoh, he's hearing the truth. He's seeing it in signs and wonders from Moses that this must be God. But he's ignoring it. He's turning from it. The more he does, the more his heart becomes hard. The more his heart becomes hard, the more it's the opportunity for God to show his miraculous power to the nation of Egypt and to the nation surrounding, so that he is glorified in the end. That is God. So he endures with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, which he knew already would choose what they chose, out of their own free will. It doesn't violate their free will that he knows these things and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, whom he hath afore prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So that's all I want to share there. This is what God has been saying this week, that he wants us as individuals to never allow ourselves to be in a place we're being exposed to the truth of who he is and from his word that we allow ourselves to be at ease and fail to seek God because we become wrapped up in the temporal cares of this life so that a hard shell like electrons spinning around the nucleus of an atom form around our heart and our lives. that makes us resistant to that ultimate positive, which is the symbol of the cross, and that ultimate negative, which is the symbol of God cutting off corruption, which is his holiness, the integrity of his love. It costs to let go of the temporal gratifications of this life, of this world, It may mean giving up your job, but you should never allow yourself to become caught up in the busyness of this life so that you don't have a life of prayer where you spend significant time seeking God and a life of being in his word, meditating in his word. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. But because what you will then is his will, for you have found him as your identity, him as your fulfillment. 
and not the fleeting things that are temporal and leave the inside of your soul lean like a black hole in outer space that is destructive out of its emptiness in this desire for temporal gratifications. As it says in the word of God, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. We're living in a time when it is easy to quench our thirst for reality, for that which really satisfies, for godliness with contentment, with the temporal flirting pleasures of the gods of amusement, the gods of materialism, to get our life in a world of busyness, and yet we think we can come to church and spend a certain amount of time, and that God is happy. Oh, we can experience his anointing, his presence, the gifts of the Spirit even, but our lives are caught up with the temporal world. It's not caught up in a relationship with God. So what happens is the hardness, the shell that is formed around our heart has caused us to be married to the world, though in outward appearance we seem to be the people of God. And so because there is adultery from God, there is adultery in marriage relationships, and there's many divorces. Because people don't have the humility to come before one another and ask for forgiveness. They're too proud. And the reason they're too proud is because they've lost the fear of God. If they knew what it was to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God in the secret place of prayer, all that shell would be broken. And there would be the softness to go to your lover your wife, your husband, and to actually wash their feet in humility, even though they may seem to be more at fault, and say, forgive me, in order to stand in the gap and win them and break down the partition of hardness. We always take the initiative, even though the other is more in the wrong, to choose to love our brothers and sisters Why we're to lay down our lives for one another. If we really know the love of God, that is the love from the Father, it's because we've been abiding in him and not in this world. There are so many that are caught up with the sports and spending hours watching sports and never pray. There are pastors that continually talk about sports and the game, even in their messages, not knowing that they're condoning ungodliness and they are encouraging their congregation to stay in that state where they're caught up with the world and are not seeking God. This is not to put people in bondage where they can't do this and can't enjoy things, but it's to emphasize the issue of being an example and discouraging those things that are the loves of the world, which is the pride of life. The things that are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. And how many of those things are in charismatic, even charismatic and Pentecostal churches? Let us not be those that are deceived by pride to justify an ungodly life and hold the truth and unrighteousness so that we are not those that can win our nation back to God. May we be those that decide to rise up and to wake up out of our sleep and become the army of God and to conquer our communities and our cities and our nation. How do we do that? by having a central place of prayer in each city and community where we come together in much prayer and fasting and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God to seek him in order to stand in the gap that we could be one of those nations that will enter the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, that we would become a righteous nation within the nation of darkness to the point that the light of the righteousness of the nation would be far greater than the darkness that is in the nation. It talks about the new Jerusalem and nations that are righteous entering in. Will Canada become a righteous nation? Will the body of Christ finally rise up and wake up? Or will it be too late? Will it be too late in the States? It is time 
that we return to the genuine fear of God by seeking him in the secret place. Oh, I could go on. I can't go on. I don't even know what the time is this time. I wasn't looking at the time while I was speaking. I've been speaking for almost an hour, but I pray that this message would minister to you in your own personal lives that you would learn the place of intimacy with God, the place of being in utter awe of who he is in the stillness, wait, learning to wait on God, to pull back all your own self-initiations until you experience being sown of God. The word Jezreel means it will be sown of God. Did you notice in this passage when it was talking about Saul, it mentioned that when Saul was killed, they fled from the valley of Jezreel, which means it will be sown of God. So on the one hand, we can allow God to sow into our lives by choosing to genuinely fear him, which means we will choose to seek him until we experience intimacy with him and satisfaction in relationship with God rather than this world. Or we can choose to hold the truth in unrighteousness so that we reap what is not sown of God, which was the case with Saul. And all those consequences out of the nation of Israel making this wrong choice that came through Saul and affected the whole nation in serious judgment and in this particular passage, these people are an example of that judgment. Thank you for listening to this message. I look forward to continuing to share with you what the Spirit of God is saying to the body of Christ that we might wake up and come forth to be his bride for his coming is soon. Thank you for listening.